Luke 10, 25-37 And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Then who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Well, the mic works now. Praise be to God. Uh, good to have you uh, with us. My name is Mark, if you're new. We are nearing the end of our time in the parables of Jesus. We've been listening to the parables of Jesus actually for almost four months now, really over the course of the entire summer and then now into September. But we have saved some of the best parables for last, some of the real classics that Jesus delivered. There's actually a progression in the parables of Jesus, just as there is a progression in your own life. As you learn and grow and mature, Jesus gets better over the course of his ministry uh, at at telling parables. Some of the early ones he tells are a little bit more simplistic. Some of the later ones he tells are classics and remain with us. Last week, we looked at one of those classics, the parable of the prodigal son. This, of course, is such a classic that that very phrase prodigal son remains a part of our modern speech even to this day. Can you imagine that phenomenon where you would come up with a story in your teaching and that simple story would go on to define an entire category of human experience for millennia? This was the kind of teacher that Jesus was. He spoke with an authority. He spoke with a weightiness And the prodigal son had a weightiness to it because in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus is standing up against what is the automatic assumption of all of humanity. Our whole humanity, everything about us, everything in us always assumes that we should be getting what we deserve. The prodigal son stands in opposition to that. It testifies to the world for all time that we have a God who does not treat us according to what we deserve. In the prodigal son, we have a father who does not crush his children in their sin, nor elevate his children in their obedience. 
In the prodigal son, we have a father who throws open wide the doors into all of his lavish riches and invites all people to come into that party. And indeed, the only way that someone can miss out on that party is by refusing to go in. And of course, it so happens that in the prodigal son, we also see that it is precisely those people who believe that they have made something of themselves who have the most difficulty going into the free party of the Father. It's those who've been forgiven much, those who've already given up on the idea of being a somebody who rush in and have no issue dancing with a bunch of nobodies. This teaching of the prodigal son is one of the defining teachings of Jesus deals with one of the defining values here at the Painted Door, which is forgiveness. One of the defining values of the church at large, the Christian church at large, is this idea of forgiveness, not being treated according to what it is that we deserve. And today, as we turn to another classic parable of Jesus, the Good Samaritan, we'll be turning to what is the second fundamental value of our church, that of compassion. This idea of stepping into suffering, stepping toward people as they hurt, sitting in the hurts of the world with people, weeping with those who weep. The prodigal son deals with forgiveness and the freedom of forgiveness. The Good Samaritan deals with compassion and the suffering involved in compassion. These are the two defining values of our church because these are the two defining values of the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus was about forgiveness and compassion, proclaiming freedom and rescue and exoneration to sinners and stepping into the most bleak places of our world, entering into suffering with us. It's the ministry of Christ, and he now invites us, he invites all churches, all Christians, all people to step into his ministry with him, to come in and participate with him in the ministries of forgiveness and compassion. And so if you've been around Painter for any stretch of time, you will notice, you would recognize that these two values are front and center for us. We talk a lot about the freedom of forgiveness. We proclaim the freedom that is found in forgiveness, in God not holding us to account for our sin. And likewise, we encourage one another regularly to move into places of suffering, to step into the hard things, the hard conversations, the relational breakdown, to not flee, to not run, to not retreat from those things that most cause anguish in our lives. These two things, forgiveness and compassion, they are the ministries of Jesus, and because Jesus defines us, they are the ministries of this church. I want us to address today this compassion peace. Last week, we looked at the forgiveness piece in the prodigal son. This week, the compassion piece, using the parable of the Good Samaritan to teach us what it is that Jesus has to say to us 
about compassion. Now, this parable that Jesus tells, he speaks it mostly to a Jewish audience. There are references in the parable that only a Jewish audience might have easily understood. He's speaking here to Jewish people, and he's telling this parable on the day after or perhaps just a couple of days removed from an encounter that he and his disciples had with the Samaritans. So in the previous chapter of Luke, to where we find the parable of the Good Samaritan, in the previous chapter, Luke chapter 9, we have a story of Jesus making his way down to Jerusalem and seeking shelter in a Samaritan village. He sends his disciples into a Samaritan village to see if they can stay there for the night. And the Samaritans, who were no fans of the Jewish people from Jerusalem, upon hearing that Jesus and his party are heading to Jerusalem, they refuse Jesus and the disciples' lodging. They won't allow them to stay in the village. And this provokes all kinds of ethnic hatred and bigotry in the disciples of Jesus. Actually, James and John suggest to Jesus in this moment that they ought to call down fire from heaven onto this Samaritan village, that they ought to torch these people, to which Jesus replies, now let's just go to another village, <laughs> right? The point is, there is much angst, ethnic hatred between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people. This was because the Samaritan people were the descendants of half-breeds, people who had been Jews, and when they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, intermarried with the Assyrians, with their captors, sold out, if you will, how many of the Jews interpreted it, and began to have children who were part Jewish, part Assyrian. And these descendants, these Samaritans, they still claimed a sort of Jewish identity. They still practiced much of the Jewish faith, but they intermixed it with practices of Assyrian religions. And so their practice of Judaism was done apart from the blessing of the temple in Jerusalem. They were not considered by the pure Jews to be a part of the descendants of Abraham. And so they were ostracized, much in the same way in our day, there are people who claim to be Christians, and yet their practice so deviates from what we would believe to be the way of Jesus that we are somewhat embarrassed by their existence and would prefer that they not call themselves Christians thinking perhaps here of sort of the Westboro Baptist folks, familiar with those folks who protest the funerals of fallen soldiers and are especially cruel to gay people, right? We would prefer that they not call themselves Christians. We want to disassociate ourselves from them in much the same way the Jews of antiquity wanted to disassociate themselves from the Samaritans. There was animosity, between these people groups. And so just a day, maybe two days removed from this flare-up of that 
ethnic animosity, Jesus is teaching, again, to a mostly Jewish crowd, and an expert in the Jewish law stands up with a question. The text that we have refers to him as a lawyer. Not exactly accurate. He was an expert in religious law, in the Torah, in the Jewish law. And the question that he asks Jesus is, what must I do to be saved? Okay, he's asking Jesus, how is it that I go about securing for myself the eternal favor of God, eternal life in God? And Jesus answers, as is his normal way, with a rhetorical question. He asks this expert in the law, what does it say in the law? And, of course, the expert in the law is very much eager to answer that question and responds perfectly by summing up the law exactly correctly. He says, the law instructs us to love God with all of our heart and soul and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself, to which Jesus replies, you got it, buddy. Do that, and you will live forever. Now, this exchange might have ended there, but this expert in the Jewish law is not yet satisfied in what he has heard from Jesus because as an expert in the Jewish law, he begins to make some calculations in his mind. If love of neighbor is a part of what it requires, what the law requires of me to be saved, then we need to set up some parameters here. Just how broad are we willing to define this neighbor bit? We have to come up with some sort of reasonable guidelines. God can't be asking us to love everyone as ourselves. So who specifically is he asking us to love? Who specifically is my neighbor? And so Luke records this for us. In chapter 10, verse 29, he, that is the law expert, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Seeking to justify himself, seeking to figure out what exactly is the bar that I have to clear regarding neighbor love, regarding love of neighbor, in order to secure the favor of God for eternity. Well, what a setup. You'd think maybe Jesus paid this guy, right? Imagine yourself being in Jesus' shoes at this moment, seeing this person who is bent on doing right, seeing this person who is, in fact, completely enslaved to the idea of law-keeping, a person who is giving himself over to the project of his own self-improvement, who is committed to following every jot and tittle of the law, to making sure that he is doing life right. And the dots in Jesus' mind start to connect here. Because only one, two, maybe three days earlier— He witnessed firsthand the level of animosity and hatred harbored by 
the Jews of Jerusalem, harbored by these experts in the law, toward their neighbors, the Samaritans. He had seen this in his own disciples. And now here he is faced with an expert in the law, representative of really all the experts in the law in ancient Jewish religion, seeking so much to live rightly and yet not noticing this hatred that lived in them for their neighbors just across the way, for people who were only slightly different than them. So Jesus decides to tell a story, and he seems to, from the text, make this story up on the spot. Doesn't appear as though he had this one ready. Just starts telling a story about a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, presumably a Jew. That's who would have traveled out of Jerusalem to Jericho. And along his way, he is attacked by criminals, and he is beaten, and he is robbed, and he is left for dead, bleeding in the gutter, as it were. And it so happens, Jesus says, that not long after, two experts in the Jewish law happen to pass by in succession. First a priest, and then a Levite. These two people were the most concerned with law-keeping in all of the Jewish world. These were people who understood the law, people who practiced the law, people who were completely sold out to rendering their lives obedient to the commands of God. They were committed to following God. And Jesus says, as they came upon this broken, bleeding man lying on the side of the Jericho Road, both of them in succession in succession, passed by on the other side. Why? Well, they did exactly what it is that we would expect and anticipate them to do because the religious ceremonial purity laws of the Jewish religion forbade priests and Levites from touching or interacting with anything that was dead or dying except for those holy sacrifices in the temple. This priest, this Levite, followed the ceremonial Jewish laws perfectly and passed by on the other side. Now, to this point in the story, this mostly Jewish audience would be listening to Jesus and nodding along. Because nothing to this point scandalous has happened whatsoever. After all, these priests and this Levite were only following the ceremonial religious code of their day. What's more, this was all happening on the Jericho Road. The Jericho Road, a stretch of road from Jerusalem to Jericho that was notoriously dangerous. This was the worst part of town. There were often muggings that happened along this road. It was a very dangerous place to be. If you had to pass along this road, you would go quickly. How often when you are passing through maybe a 
spotty neighborhood of Chicago, a neighborhood of Chicago where muggings are frequent, how common is it to see someone crumpled lying there on the sidewalk or just off to the side? This is a normal occurrence. Walk through any of the more difficult neighborhoods in Chicago, even walk in some of the nicer neighborhoods in Chicago. It is typical to seeing someone lying there. And so there's nothing extraordinary here about walking past. In fact, if you were in a rougher part of Chicago and you stopped to help someone who was lying along the side of the road, your mother would not approve. That's a dangerous thing to do. Might well be a trap. You have no idea the story. You don't know what's happening there. Best, probably, to simply move along. And so as Jesus is telling this story, his crowd is nodding along. No scandal there in priest and Levite keeping their distance. There would have been a scandal had they moved toward this broken man. It would have been scandalous to care for him, to get close to him, to touch him. But it's what happens next in the story that is the scandal that Jesus means to share. Luke 10.33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Okay, now this would have gotten the crowd's attention. In fact, here now, Jesus is beginning to tie this law expert in knots. Okay, because it's very clear from the story that this Samaritan has done something generous and extraordinarily kind. That he's acted according to compassion. Who could deny that? He has sacrificed his time, his energy, his money, given about two days' wages to care for this man. What's more, Samaritans were bound by the same ritualistic purity laws as the Jews of Jerusalem. This man is forsaking all of that. He is crossing over all of those purity laws. And he is rejecting the ethnic taboo of the day. Samaritans don't help Jews. Jews don't help Samaritans. These people are at odds with one another. Yet, unlike the priest and the Levite, this Samaritan forsakes all of those rules of the day, violates those taboos, rejects those purity laws. Why? Because he lets compassion get the better of him. And you see here how Jesus is tying this law expert in knots. This law expert who is so concerned with following the law 
love your neighbor as yourself. In this particular instance, the only way to love the neighbor was to violate the law. Jesus is saying to this religious law expert, sometimes the only way to follow the law is to forget the law. That's a terrifying idea for someone who has committed their entire life to knowing and paying very close attention to the law. Someone who believes and is committed to this idea that by paying close attention to the law and seeking to follow every bit of it, I can navigate myself into righteousness, into fullness. Here, Jesus is saying, it won't work. The law says love your neighbor, but in order to love this neighbor... You have to break the law. It's important to know this. That wanting to be a good person will not make you good. Seeking to obey every command that God gives, every law that God gives, paying very close attention to all the bits and pieces of God's commands that will not lead you into fullness of life. In fact, often it will lead you away from love. The priest and the Levite did nothing wrong according to the law, but they did not love their neighbor. Now, we live in an age of high moralism, believe it or not. Okay, the moralism of our day is not like the moralism of past generations. The moralism of past generations of recent generations has been a moralism primarily concerned with family ethics. The moralism of our day is not primarily concerned with family ethics, but nevertheless, there is a high moralism in our day. We are deeply concerned in our day about whether we land on the right side of history. We are deeply concerned in our day about whether it is that we are good and decent people. It matters a lot to us. We live in fear of judgments about picking the wrong candidate, about saying something racially insensitive, about not being progressive enough on gender, We are terrified of these judgments. And we live our lives trying to avoid them. We live our lives running from them, trying to make sure we get it right, trying to make sure we land on the right side of history. The social cost 
of getting these things wrong is too high. The social cost of being thought on the wrong side of history, even silently, just suffering that silent accusation from our peers that we are among the ignorant ones, it's too much for us to bear. We don't want it. We want to avoid it with all we're worth. What if? What if you were required to break those taboos in order to love someone? What if a situation arose where the only way that you might demonstrate compassion to someone, the only way that you might move towards someone, the only way that you might step into the suffering and brokenness of a person forgotten would be to do such things that would leave you open to the charge of racist, bigot, What if love and compassion required you to lay down your own reputation? What if it required you to break and violate the most precious laws and taboos of our day? What if it required you to be a fool and to be thought ignorant Would you go there? Would you suffer those consequences for the sake of compassion and love? Would you be willing? Or would you keep your distance? Would you stay at a nice, safe distance where people would go on thinking of you as decent, as upright, The late uh, British playboy, Sebastian Horsley, he says, compassion is not photogenic. That is to say, moving toward hurting people won't make you look good. In fact, moving toward hurting people requires that your hands get dirty, that your reputation gets sullied. It will cost you a lot. It costs this Samaritan a lot. Cost him a lot more than time and energy and money. He broke the taboos of the day. He violated the standards of decency in his day. You see, because this is what compassion is. This is what compassion means. It means to suffer with. When we move toward suffering people in compassion, we step into that place of shame and sorrow and loss, and we get the stink of all that on us. To love hurting people means to step into shame. To step into a place where you will bear the burden of shame. Where you will be mocked and ridiculed and thought a fool. 
I mentioned that we live in a day that's highly moralistic. We also live in a day that's highly pain-phobic. We resist and run from suffering at every turn. We want nothing to do with suffering. So much so that we cannot even suffer a five-minute wait at a bus stop without taking out our phone for relief, Snapchat, hunt some Pokemon, whatever it is. We can't suffer our sexual urges. We relieve them with porn. We can't suffer relational fallout. We cut off friends, leave our churches, skip town. We can't suffer a hard marriage. We get divorced. We can't suffer an unwanted pregnancy. We have an abortion. We refuse to suffer in our day and age. We run from suffering at every turn. So why then should it be any surprise to us that we are unwilling to step into the suffering of hurting people? Why should it be any surprise to us that when someone steps into our church who is not like us, we ignore them? Why should it be any surprise to us that we are unwilling to befriend people that will cost us something? That will cost us more than just time and reputation and money, but will cost us our lives. Why should it be any surprise that all of our friends are young and beautiful? Why should it be any surprise that we have curated our lives to keep ourselves safe and comfortable and at a distance from anything hard? All of us. This is where we live. We refuse to step into the broken places of our own city, of our own neighborhood, of our church, of our marriage. We resist and we run. We want nothing to do with compassion. We stand at a safe distance because it's too risky. It's too risky to go into those hard places. I might say the wrong thing. I might do the wrong thing. It might get really awkward. It might be really uncomfortable. I'll feel like a fool. Everyone will know that I'm ignorant. I'll be exposed. Why would I ever risk loving someone? Why would I ever risk suffering with someone? If it's going to cost me all of that, So I'll just stay safe. I'll just retreat. I won't rock the boat. I won't risk. I won't love. Won't put my reputation or my comfort on the line. That kind of self-protective living, it's not the life of Jesus. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is a half-breed who has no business coming into our shady part of town and stooping low to get into our bloody, dirty mess. The law does not compel Jesus to leave heaven and come to us. In fact, the law would have been just fine with him staying there. What does a holy God have to do with unholy, filthy, 
bloody rebels. What does he have to do with us? But Jesus was filled with love and compassion. He moved toward us in love and compassion. He came to us. He risked all that he is, and he lost. He lost everything. He let himself get swept up into love, and he lived in that love, even though it cost him his last breath. And he is now offering this life to you. He's saying, come into this risky love with me. Come into these hard places with me. Come into these broken places with me. Risk all that you are. Participate in my life and death. Participate in my personhood. Participate in my ministry. Hear this, church, in the power of Christ. You can suffer. You can suffer. And it will not cost you life and joy. You can suffer and still taste real life and joy. You do not have to live in that self-protective place, always fighting for your own happiness as if that was really your responsibility. You can throw caution to the wind and spend yourself in love and compassion. You can suffer with those who suffer. You can lose reputation. You can be thought Ignorant, you can have the whole world declare that you have landed on the wrong side of history. You can have everyone abandon you, and all you will find in that place is resurrection. Jesus will meet you there. This is where he lives, he's already there, taking us by the hand. Come suffer with me. Come suffer with those who hurt. Suffer with your spouse. Suffer with your children. Suffer with your neighbors. Suffer with whomever is broken that God brings into your life. Do not run from it. Do not protect yourself. Do not preserve yourself. Spend yourself in love. In the power of Christ, we can suffer. As the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I am nothing. Let go of trying to be upright. Let go of protecting your own decency. Let go of preserving your own life. Step into this adventure of love and the life of Christ. Be crucified there. And you will know the joy of resurrection. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Good Samaritan who comes and meets us as we are bleeding and dying on the side of the road and takes us by the hand and shows us compassion and rescues us from dead things.
Father, I pray you'd send your spirit into this congregation to stir up in us the life of your son, that you would animate us in him, that we would spend ourselves and lose our lives in love. Help us. Amen.